out. A left to the jaw, and... Oh, my block is knocked off. Some of the ideology behind why one place gets attention and not another. Obviously, U.S. funding is a big part of why so many people pay attention to Israel. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a sublation media podcast. Cyber Dandy here is going to, to introduce the discussion as I force that upon him before you arrive. So, here. Yep. Surprise, surprise. So, uh, yeah. Welcome, uh, everybody. Ben Burgess from Give Them an Argument and many other things, Douglas Lane from Sublation Media and also other things, and myself, Cyber Dandy from Cyber Dandy. Um, recently, Ben hosted a class on Proudhon versus Marx, and we read the first half of Proudhon's System of Economic Contradictions, which is the only half available in English, and then followed it up with a reading of Marx's Poverty of Philosophy, which is a critique of that book, more or less. Um, so I think, how many months were we in that class, Ben? Like four, four or five? Yeah, yeah, maybe like four. It, it was like, they're both, you know, they're both short books, but, you know, we went over it relatively slowly. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we wanted to follow up on that and do an episode together because Doug had, uh, uh, worked with me on the idea of eventually doing something on Proudhon and you had this class coming up. So we thought it'd be great if all of us got together and uh, chatted it out. Nice. You guys have me at a disadvantage. I have read the poverty philosophy and skimmed the Proudhon, but I um, did not spend months studying it. So uh, I expect to be corrected as we go through the conversation. Well, if you had one thing that, you know is that the corrected is going to be hard because um Proudhon's writing style means that it's uh often a little tricky to to nail down exactly i mean it depends some some parts of it are clearer than others but it's often fairly tricky to nail down what he, what he means i mean it's like so I, I think part of the reason uh that so many more people have read the poverty philosophy is is just that it's like so much better written that like you know that it's uh you know, that he's kind of at an advantage there that has nothing to do with the ideas that they're arguing about. Well, I um, I took a glance at both texts, and I thought that, the, you know, obviously biased in favor of Marx, I thought the major difference was that Proudhon spoke in abstract generalities in general, and uh, whereas Marx, well, Marx, wasn't writing capital or something like that when he was responding to Proudhon. So he was often sniping mm -hmm. uh, at Proudhon. But um, but I, I generally found myself, you know, predisposed to siding with Marx and then easily confirmed in my 
initial assumptions. Um, but what I can I I have written down here, and both of you can to tell me how far from the mark I am mm. or if I'm close. Mm. Um, the primary criticism of Proudhon um, is that he assumes what he sets out to explain. He needs to uh, what needs to be added is a description of how exchange. So this is in the um, section on opposition value, the opposition of value and use and value in exchange. This, okay. Uh, and it's worth noting that Marx doesn't begin his critique of Proudhon with chapter one, but with chapter two of the Proudhon, because the first chapter is kind of twaddle. So um, the, the the primary criticism is that Proudhon assumes what he sets out to explain. Um, that is, uh, he needs to uh, add a description of how exchange value came to dominate society. Mm -hmm. Instead, Proudhon takes exchange value as a natural consequence of mankind's desires and suggests that exchange value arose through some sort of agreement amongst men. Um, right. Proudhon supposes that no bourgeois economists have noticed the opposition between exchange value and use value. Marx corrects him on this um, and demonstrates that the opposition is well known amongst bourgeois economists. It's a well-known fact. Um, but the, that would be my, the overall critique of Proudhon, if you put it in a more mm. generalized way, would be that Proudhon takes uh, the current conditions of society, of bourgeois society, as um, natural uh, and uh, doesn't arrive at their how they developed um, historically, nor does he provide a systematic understanding of the categories of bourgeois society, um, but instead speaks of things in kind of abstract, general ways and creating his own dichotomies along the way would sometimes or often enough obscure more than they reveal that would yeah be. that's def that's definitely not bad for not reading uh reading it super close that criticism is in there for sure um i i don't really accept the criticism mm -hmm. entirely because the way that Proudhon pitches his book is as a direct response to the political economists and utopian socialists at the time so he's beginning from their importance that they place on value and exchange value and not like marx developing this history of how we got to where we are so i, I guess i'm not i'm not sure about this part um because this is like whether you're right about that or not isn't really directly answered within the text uh that there there isn't um you know i mean i i think that it's possible that that's right uh they uh but you know he certainly doesn't say as much um and i i don't know i mean like you're talking to, to to cyber dandy now that that Proudhon doesn't say that he's directing this. Yeah. I mean, he certainly does criticize both of those groups of people in the book. That's true. Right. Like he does, mm -hmm. you know, he, he is critical of both bourgeois economists and utopian socialists in the book. But, um, but I, I, you know, this sort of assumption that it's like, well, um, that's, you know, therefore this sort of explains how he's presenting things that, you know, he's sort of accepting their assumptions or something like that. Uh, that's, no, no, no. Oh, okay. He definitely, he definitely says it 
right from the outset that uh, the political economists take value to be the cornerstone of their their theory, and mm -hmm. this is how I'm going to respond to them. And I have a bunch of quotes about this, but it's sure. I'd I'd actually be. I mean, I don't know how much time we we'll spend on this, but I'd actually be pretty interested in seeing the quotes. But uh, the but um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess like Marx's defense of the honor of the bourgeois economist maybe strikes me as the least interesting part of the uh, the poverty of uh, philosophy. I think that the um, you know, but but I think elements of of the rest of what Doug says uh, do do line up with you know with I think what are more interesting things that might be going on there and, you know, and, and, um, you know, and, and I think that the sort of, um, you know, most interesting to me difference between Marx and Proudhon is, is roughly along the lines of one of the things Doug just said, right. Which is about the, the approach towards economic history and, and hence in Marx's mind, the history of all the stuff, that's superstructural from uh, from from economics. Um, so that um, you know, Proudhon talks a lot about uh, uh, like humanity as a whole, the social genius. You know, he uh, he uses this uh, this name Prometheus for uh, this sort of uh, collective genius of humanity. You know, figuring things out over time and um, and it it does seem to me that you know that he basically does have this this view that you know it's it's not it's not static in the sense that there's no historical progress. Of course, Perdon definitely thinks there is historical progress, but um, the sort of ground on which that progress is happening in a certain way, I think, is kind of static for uh, for uh, for Perdon that uh, that he. Uh, that he does, in fact, when he's talking about things like uh, exchange, uh, he does, in fact, talk about that as this sort of um, a priori, like conceptual problem that Prometheus has to solve. You know, how how do we uh, go about, um, you know, getting the benefits of you know lots of different kinds of you know activities that people do without doing them all yourself? Uh, and yeah, yeah. and. Um, and that's, and there is a lot of that kind of of thing there, right? You know that he he sort of, you know he's you know Proudhon I think sees history in terms of, uh, in terms of like humanity sort of collectively figuring out how to solve these problems that that it has in the broadest sense, right? So, whereas, um, what what Marx sees are the you know these um different modes of production that are that uh that that kind of have their own laws their own needs that uh where and that the you know what's going on within them and how the transitions between them happen is um is all about uh is all about class struggle and uh and it and it is and so like for example um i don't want to i don't want to run away with this too much uh, if, if you were going somewhere else, but do you want me to keep going with this? Uh, no, I think, I mean, so far I basically agree. I might put it in different terms. But... Yeah. Okay. And I, and I have an addition to make, sure. which is that it's not, not only does he see that you're quite right. I think 
um, Ben, that he sees that there are different modes of production and therefore different kind of grounds for uh, the social problems that we face. In other words, we face different problems mm -hmm. based on the different ways in which we've organized uh, our material reproduction, say. But um, beyond that, he gives a specific example um, to kind of overturn um, Proudhon's approach, which is that, in fact, the uh -huh. exchange didn't dominate society in the way that it does now. In the past, it was not a universal problem uh, that was just based on man's Promethean nature, but um, something changed. And, and it used to be in the, in the past that people were mostly uh, producing the, what they needed for themselves. Right. They were subsistence farmers, and what, while there might have been lords who took a tax from all the different peasant farmers, nonetheless, uh, the range of production was uh, much narrower and the kinds of uh, things that people needed, and therefore the need for exchange was much narrower. Um, so one of the ways we can look at um, the change in production is also a, a way of kind of expanding the Promethean nature of the human person, that in a bourgeois society, we become more obviously Promethean. We become more obviously expansive. Uh, because the demands of the economy are such that there will be and more needs for innovation and more needs for uh, uh, an expansion of production and creation of new needs. Um, yeah. So that what's transformed is the kind of character of humanity. What it may be the the what's developed is the realm of freedom uh, under bourgeois uh, conditions. Certainly, the character of freedom has changed. Um, as the mode of production has changed. It's a social relationship around that, that's necessary for that mode of production to to be instantiated has changed. So that's all so, I'd add. Yeah, I think where where the biggest difference is that Proudhon tends to tie things to exchange itself and Marx ties things to modes of production. Uh, I think part of the confusion as far as the trans-historical way that exchange is depicted in Proudhon's work is that uh, what he wants to say is that there's no such thing as value until you have exchange. And so until people start exchanging things with each other, it's not, those things aren't thought of as value, uh, as exchange value. They're just useful things, right? So he's he doesn't give an account of this emergence of exchange society because what he's focused on is value and right. what is value. Uh, but he does also say, though, right, it's, it's not just that he's not focused on it. I mean, like, he does very explicitly say that uh, people start exchanging because they have this, like, a priori problem, you know, of, like, how uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to meet these various needs. And, um, and then, you know, and then sure, he does say the exchange hasn't always existed. He does, you know, that's, that's true. Right. But like, he also, uh, he also says like, as he's describing it coming into existence, like he says, like, you know, the, like he describes it, like he, the word he actually uses is like logical, this logical problem of like how we're going to like meet our needs or whatever. And then he says, like, he has some formulation, like the historical process follows the 
the logical order. So, you know, so, so he does, um, you know, he does see, he does, he really does portray these sort of needs that t- exchange satisfies as, as being sort of timeless and intrinsic to the human condition. The needs, I think, yes. Um, but then he goes on to say that new values are increasingly created as human beings start exchanging with each other. And sort of what Doug just said, that you do get into more complex societies where you are generating new values all the time. Um, I think the way I'd put it, there's dynamism in Proudhon's system, but it's more like a screensaver than like a movie. Uh So, you know, like you'll have something bouncing around on your screen for a screensaver, but you don't really have this kind of development over time that you get in Marx. Uh, yeah, I like, I like the metaphor. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the, it's, you know, like, like a, it just does seem to me that the way that Perdon describes it, you definitely get this picture that it's the, you have, you have this sort of timeless problem that maybe very slowly gets solved. Right. But that's a that's a very different view from saying that, you know, essentially you have new problems that arise from, you know, from from new stages of history that, you know, that like come uh, that, you know, if um, again. So so what I was starting to say earlier, right, is is that is that I think, you know, probably one of the places in. um, uh I mean, when I read this in the, you know, uh, system of economic contradictions or, you know, the uh, one translation of the subtitle, and sometimes it's used as the title, that's what Marx's title is playing off of, you know, the philosophy of poverty. Uh, the um, one uh, one passage in there, and when I read it, I did not have the poverty philosophy, you know, freshly in mind, but it still really hit me as like, oh, wow, this is like where the difference between Proudhon and Marx gets super obvious. And then Marx indeed uh goes after this passage in the poverty of philosophy is when Proudhon's talking about the French Revolution and he says uh that um uh he says that you know it would be ridiculous to try to uh reverse this historical progress of the French Revolution, you know, that uh, that proclaimed free trade along with all the other freedoms uh that they were that they were fighting for. Um and you know he doesn't use this language. This is my gloss on what he's saying, right? But like he he seems to, you know, his view seems to be well. This is like one of like Prometheus's like settled verdicts, you know, that they that like, you know, humanity figured out that it needed you know free trade, and so now we we just have to build on that, right? As we go into this sort of you know mutualist alternative to to both you know capitalism and the views of the European socialists that he's going to put forward. And Marx's response to that in the poverty of philosophy is exactly what you'd expect it to be, given Marx's views, which is that he says, wait a second, this is absurd. You're saying that, you know, because bourgeois revolutionaries in the 18th century uh, proclaimed free trade to meet their historical needs at the time, that means that other people in the 19th century don't have other historical needs, you know, in the name of, you know, in the name of which they might overthrow it, right? Like that they, and I think you really get that difference between that, um, you know, sort of timeless problem that's slowly being solved and the new problems that arise at new times in history views. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that oh. makes a lot of sense to me. And that, and I want to go back to defend uh, the fact that Marx critiqued Proudhon for misunderstanding the bourgeois economist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you guys fight about that. <laughs> because um, the reason he it is important to note that the bourgeois economists had reached similar con conclusions to Proudhon that Proudhon claims to have reached on his own, but also uh, to realize that their development of the ideas were more systematic and more thoroughgoing and less uh, idealized than, uh, and, you know, less abstract than um, Proudhon's. And the reason all that's important to realize is because also those guys, like especially Adam Smith, were advocating for new, a new form of society when they wrote. They were revolutionaries of kind then. And um, so the, it's comparing the bourgeois revolutionaries to the socialist revolutionaries. And one of the things that Marx was doing was critiquing reactionary elements, regressive elements within the socialist movement, the romantic strains within the socialist movements. Um, and so it's worth noting that Proudhon is falling below the level of Adam Smith as he writes. He's, he's not as advanced as a bourgeois economist. Um, I know I, I sound like a, a, a certain platypus person, but it still, it is there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah such, such a more palatable version. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's, that's probably, that's probably right. That, and, and I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll let cyber daddy respond, but I, I just wanted to put a pin in the fact that like something that would be really good to touch on here is, uh, cause Proudhon definitely does have a critique of the utopian socialists, but you know what the difference is between that critique and Marx's critique, but yeah, cyber daddy, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I, I think one thing I just want to point out before we go much further is that the poverty of philosophy has way more that it misses than what it hits. We're definitely hitting on the good parts, but the first two chapters at least are really full of misrepresentations and kind of just jousting and not really deep arguments. And it's really the second part of the book that you get some of these better arguments about methodology can, and stuff Can you like give that. me an example of um, uh, a clear miss or a misrepresentation from the first yeah. chapter? Because I kind of took my examples, I think, like I have an example about the use value and exchange value opposition I think that's from the first chapter, but, um, but what do you see as a, as a myth? So one thing that Marx gets on Proudhon for in the, in the first bit of this is he says that Proudhon confuses, uh, the seller with, uh, the buyer or something along those lines where he inverts, like, let me put this another way. Proudhon makes it very clear that use value, uh, the buyer and um uh are one side of the exchange whereas exchange value is determined by an estimate of what the buyer is going to pay for it there's a point that marx keeps hitting on throughout the first chapter where he keeps saying that no prudhon inverse inverted this or prudhon forgot about demand right and there's whole this whole ongoing thing about Proudhon not understanding how demand works. And it's, I've gone through sentence by sentence and compared the text and found, you know, 
every way that this is incorrect uh, and not really what Perdon said at all. Um, well, I mean, so, I found that section in the poverty of philosophy. Um, should we go over it and see what's wrong with it here? So he says, um, these are what we should call, um, the, okay, these are what we should almost call truisms, yet we have to repeat them here in order to render Mr. Proudhon's mysteries comprehensible. So that following, this is Proudhon now, so that following up the principle to its ultimate consequences, one would come to the conclusion, the most logical in the world, that the things whose use is indispensable and whose quantity is unlimited should be had for nothing. And those whose utility is nil and whose scarcity is extreme should be of incalculable worth. To cap the difficulty, these extremes are impossible in practice. On the one hand, no human product could ever be unlimited in magnitude. On the other, even the scarcest thing would preforce be useful to a certain degree. Otherwise, they would be quite valueless. Use value and exchange value are thus inexorably bound up with each other, although by their nature, they continually tend to be mutually exclusive. And then Marx says, what caps uh, Proudhon's difficulty? That he has simply forgotten about demand and that yeah. a thing can be scarce or abundant only insofar as it is in demand. The moment he leaves out demand, he identifies exchange value with scarcity and use value with abundance. In reality, in saying that things whose utility is nil and scarcity extreme are incalculable are of incalculable worth he is simply declaring that exchange value is merely scarcity scarcity extreme and utility nil means pure scarcity incalculable worth is the maximum of exchange value it is pure exchange value he equates these two terms therefore exchange value and scarcity are equivalent terms in arriving at right. these alleged extreme consequences, Proudhon has in fact carried out to the carried to the extreme not the things but the terms which express them, and in so doing, he shows proficiency proficiency in rhetoric, in all their nakedness. No, wait, rather than logic, he merely rediscovers his first hypothesis in all their nakedness when he thinks he had discovered new consequences. Now I'll stop there. Right, and that's actually one of the main portions I'm referring to. Right, so. Like Proudhon equates demand and use value and the buyer. These are, uh, that's the way he thinks about it, right? So there's no point at which he forgets about demand. He just doesn't explicitly say demand. Um, he's saying that we could only value things if they are useful and that are somewhere between totally scarce and totally abundant. So value can only really happen between those two extremes that's what he's getting at in this thing that marx is responding to uh so what is now what is marx what is marx claiming here that he he's saying um that he leaves out demand in terms of determining whether something is scarce or not right yeah so he right so i and think demand is, is being equated with use value which is on the side of the production? Is is that how it's split with, within Proudhon? I think the point Marx is trying to make is that because Proudhon doesn't factor in demand in the market, that he thinks that markets operate just by abundance and scarcity. Oh, okay. I'm, well, not, I'm not sure it's true I'm that it's sure in the Marx, market. Marx is saying that, actually, right? Like, that, that Proudhon is, is saying that, right? I, I think... Um, I was going to 
I was largely planning to stay out of this part because I wasn't sure I had a, I had a strong view about whether, you know, Marx was getting put on right in this part. But um, it seems like it seems like what Marx is saying, as I recall that passage, is that um, is that Pradhan is treating this something as a big mystery. That's only a big mystery if you describe it or set up the problem in a way that doesn't account for for demand, right? I mean, that was my impression of what the what the the accusation was. I, I think that's a different accusation than like Proudhon in general, like doesn't know that demand exists or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just be let's be clear. What is Proudhon saying in the in this paragraph? He's saying, um, the, the, what? So he's saying the following up the principle to its ultimate consequences. One would come to conclusion that the things whose use is indispensable and whose quantity is unlimited should be had for nothing. So in other words, we're talking about what sets a price here. And if, and if the quantity of something is uh, unlimited and it's very useful, then demand would not um, determine that it would be, have a high price because there's an unlimited supply. And so therefore it would be had for nothing. Um, and then on the other hand, if you have something that is not useful, but is very, that, that's very scarce, um, then it would be, of whose utility is nil and whose scarcity is extreme. It should be of, you know, an infinite price, which is an absurd conclusion. Um, to cap the difficulty, these extremes are impossible in practice on the, so he's saying, so, um, uh, we don't this we don't encounter this this isn't what happens but according to the logic of economics it should i think no human product could ever be unlimited in magnitude and even the scarcest thing must, must have some use value or else it wouldn't have any value so use value and exchange value are thus inexorably bound up with each other although by their nature they continually tend to be mutually ex- mutually exclusive so all right so what is he saying here that is uh that Marx is objecting to? Is he just saying not very much? Is that the objection you think, Ben? That he's like uh explaining something that need not be explained? Uh yeah, I mean this is part of what I was why I was gonna sit out this part of the discussion because cause I don't I'm not sure I have a confident view about what uh what Pradhan is um is saying there, uh but you know, again, my my memory of the at least the structure of Marx's objection is that you know Proudhon is setting up these uh, these antinomies that you know that that he sees as these sort of like you know kind of profound mysterious things uh, that um, and that that Marx is saying no, it's it's not actually that you know, mysterious or you're, you're making it mysterious by, by describing it in this kind of obtuse way that, that leaves out, you know, this like really big factor. So if you look at the bigger context of the quote that Marx gives in the book, this is a section where Proudhon is basically laying out why scarcity and abundance matter. Uh, He does this before moving on to other impacts on value. In, on exchange value. So it's like Marx is taking uh, 
a preliminary idea that Proudhon is talking about and expecting to get a more advanced idea out of it, which he does a few times. Um, and then uh, he'll later quote some other piece of Proudhon and all of a sudden, you know, demand is there or Proudhon is saying the thing that Marx said he didn't say or vice versa. This is the kind of stuff that I don't, it doesn't hit very well if you're really going to examine both texts next to each other. Well, I mean, we can, um, we're kind of doing that right now, um, right? Because I have both both texts open on, on my computer. It's amazing, the technology. Right. Um, so if but, you, uh, yeah, so if you look at the full the, quote. Is this quote um, uh, Proudhon's in the first chapter or the second? I mean, in the second is, chapter. Of the third. It should um, be the second. Almost everything Marx quotes is going to be from pretty much the same area except a few bits from volume two, um, which kind of makes me doubt if Marx read the whole book. But um, Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I bet he did because uh, he's Marx um, and, and we love Marx. Okay, so what, uh, uh, also, also, like, I think that Marx can be fairly accused of a lot of different kinds of bad behavior and like faction fights, but I don't really think one of them is not doing every possible bit of reading he could get his hands on in every circumstance. Like uh, this is a, right. this is a guy who, you know, spent like thousands of hours, like reading like the reports of English factory inspectors. He's writing capital. He has a, uh, that, uh, you know, like he teaches himself Russian in part to, you know, to try to, to try to get, you know, like answer a question. Somebody yeah, asked, I mean, uh, you know, like, 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 so it, it, in other words, like, I, you know, I think like, like when you're saying Marx isn't showing sufficient interpretive charity, that doesn't stretch the bounds of the imagination for me. It's like, yeah, okay. I think that's something Marx might've done, right? That they have a, he might've like gotten pissed off about it and like interpreted something in, in a bad light. Or if you say like, you know, he was like in many ways, guy with kind of a bare knuckle brawler as far as this stuff goes, but like, come on, he did the reading. I mean, no, I seriously have questions about that because I don't understand why he's quoting things on a topic from chapters that aren't dedicated to that topic. Uh, I don't understand why all the quotes are coming from only these first couple chapters or even the first sections of the chapters. And it's not that I think Marx doesn't have the capacity or doesn't have the, the will to want to do that. To me, it feels like he thinks Proudhon is so dumb that all he has to do is find like the epitome of Proudhon in these few sections and critique that and that'll produce a sufficient work on its own. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think whatever was available to him at the time, I'm, I'm, I just, I just, well, we can't know for sure. There were no security cameras. As you say, there's no way to know. But well, I guess one way we, we could know is whether or not um, what he's critiquing, the critiques actually land. Right. And so the question for me is, what is the claim that, that Proudhon is making here that Marx is critiquing? Why is it uh, important to, uh, for Proudhon to point out that there's a mystery? Because he does, uh, about um, uh, the fact that uh, 
scarcity, let's see, what does he say? That scarcity is on the side of use values and you can find abundance on the side of exchange or something like that, that these things are connected, you know, and not so, completely separated out. Um, so, right. So what Proudhon is doing here is he's saying why, when people produce more, are they worth less in exchange? And it's because they're creating an abundance. Whereas if you want something to be worth more in exchange, there needs to be a scarcity for it. And he's laying out how abundant and how scarce they need to be. It can't be totally abundant and it can't be totally scarce. It needs to be somewhere between those two so that there is a value to exchanging them. So Proudhon is saying that the source of value and therefore in some way or another of price is either the scarcity or uh, the abundance of the commodities? Only in this section, because he goes on to discuss the way that estimated value on the part of the seller is a way that the, the seller is trying to figure out what the use value is of the buyer for whatever the product is. And this is something else Marx confuses. He, when he talks about it, he doesn't realize that Proudhon is talking about, you know, I want to sell you a chicken. I have to figure out how much you're going to pay for it, is what Proudhon means by estimated value. Marx seems to take that to mean something else. What does, he, what does Marx take it to mean? Um, I'd have to look at my notes, but I know I commented on it. Was, I mean, just uh, kind of a, my knee-jerk reaction to this is to say that um, while abundance and scarcity um, are operating factors in determining price, but the way they do that is mediated um, through production. So if something is um, abundant, that would probably mean that it, didn't take a lot of labor to produce just to be real simple-minded about it and so that it would its price which would be connected to the labor time although not identical to it would be lower uh because it could be produced more easily and quickly and therefore it would be more abundant then if the price were to then go up it would probably be because the uh number of workers dedicated to producing that particular item would decline as profitability in that sector declined. Therefore, the if the demand held steady, the uh, supply would decline. But it is not simply the demand or the scarcity that is determining the value. Rather, right. it is the amount of time dedicated to producing Right. The commodity. And so, and I haven't, so does Proudhon, I mean, that, so, I mean, by, at, at this point, we're like reaching the level of Adam Smith, right? Oh, uh, I've been Burgess. Oh, I, I think see. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Proudhon definitely gets into all of that later. I mean, throughout the work, he's, he's working his way up you know, from really the bare minimum uh, conceptual framework you need to understand value. And then eventually he'll get into credit. He'll get into 
international trade, you know, in the second volume, he uh, gets into a lot more complex issues. But that's why I find it so, like, A uh, dumb, dumb question, but since you're the Perdon expert, do you uh, uh, were the were the two volumes published simultaneously? I uh, I believe they were. Okay. I'm. I don't know if I would say I'm an expert. I've. Uh, okay, as the person down a rabbit hole for sure, the, though. Yeah, fair enough. As the person of the three of us who spent the most time down that rabbit hole, uh, I would. I was just wondering if you do that or not. They like because I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why they weren't translated to English at the same time. I think Rudolf Rocker, an anarchist, translated the first volume to English, and then just no one has bothered to do the second volume. Okay. Um. So just to just as a as a heads up, obviously, you know, you guys can can keep talking for as as long as as you two want after I go. But I do, I am going to turn into a pumpkin in about. 12 15 minutes so uh if if that can we talk about bakunin before you go and then if that impacted how you wanted to structure the next little bit of the discussions what the yeah yeah let's 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 leave prudon aside for now and talk about bakunin because i have something to say about him based on like basically one step up from reading wikipedia um okay and robertson describes the difference uh that marx had with bakunin in a in a piece in a socialist journal and she said, Bakunin believed that mankind was a moral creature by nature, whereas Marx believed that mankind's nature was essentially free and rational. Robertson describes this as a conflict between uh, enlightenment and empirical or empiricist um, understandings of the world on Bakunin's side and a Hegelian approach on the other. So um, I, I thought that might be a useful thing to say about Bakunin and anarchism. Um, so, uh, sorry, so, sorry the, what was the Hegelian approach? Then what was the first one? Marx, the first one was like the empiricist and enlightenment view okay. of, of the human person. So like we are basically similar to Proudhon in a way. It's like we're rational creatures always working on solving the kind of the same problems. Okay. We have this internal, we are reasoned creatures. We are Prometheus. We are the, you know, we've discovered uh, mankind's true nature. Um, and uh yeah so i'll say that and then i have another follow-up to that okay. for you specifically ben but go ahead ben uh yeah that's interesting so uh i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna steer way clear of of trying to comment on on bakunin uh because um i haven't you know i mean i've read a teeny bit of bakunin over the years but i mean like you know i, I haven't even looked at his wikipedia as recently as you have so um i'm gonna but i will say that the point about Hegel um, is interesting because I guess I don't. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, like, cause the obvious follow-up question is like, okay, like what's the Hegelian view, right? <laughs> well, I don't know what she thinks the Hegelian view is, um, yeah. but, the, but I would say the Hegelian view would be something along the lines of what we described earlier, only not in terms of, modes of production but what maybe in terms of modes of life or uh -huh. of ideologies or something like that the development of different conditions and the development of a condition of freedom through a process of historical unfolding which does create change yeah um, rather that, yeah that might be right so i i know um 
I mean, the Hegel stuff is also certainly part of what Marx understands as being an issue between him and Proudhon that, uh, that, um, you know, Proudhon says all this stuff in, um, in, in the philosophy of poverty that is, you know, he, he doesn't say the word Hegel, so it's open to interpretation, but, you know, but it's, it feels very Hegelian. He's using, he's certainly using a lot of the same words in the same ways that people who, uh, that people who are trying to describe Hegel's dialectics use them. Um, that much, at least we could say for sure, you know, thesis and antithesis, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I know from our discussion before, um, you know, I, I know from our discussion before we recorded this, that there's a, there's an alternate view according to which that, you know, he's really trying to do something else, but, uh, they, but, um, but it, it certainly, you know, that was certainly my, my reading, you know, without Mark's you know, without filtering it through Marx's reading, I mean, that was, that was what I thought when I was reading it. It's like, oh, it seems like he's trying, you know, it seems like he's using all this Hegel-y language here. Um, and Marx certainly takes it that way, but, you know, but he accuses him of, like, misunderstanding Hegel. You know, he defends the honor of Hegel just like he defends the honor of the bourgeois economists. Uh, and, uh, and, and he says, no, 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 this isn't what, you know, this isn't what Hegel is saying because really it's this it's this other thing like you know kind of like kind of what you kind of what you just said right that um you know he has i mean i think the alternate reading is that Proudhon is really doing something that's supposed to be like kant's uh antinomies of of pure reason although i don't know that i totally understand how that view works because the whole the whole point about the antinomies of pure reason is that they're unsolvable um and and it it does seem like um it does seem like uh Proudhon thinks that there are you know there are solutions uh to 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 all of this i mean that, which that, would make him a hegelian right <laughs> I suppose so, right yeah yeah yeah, yeah right because that's a way of reading like the the progression from Kant to hegel that you know that uh right. yeah yeah i i think that i think that might be right you know but um but this is you know so there's there are two questions here one is an exegetical question right which is um is Proudhon trying to be hegelian and failing um and then there's the then there's like the the sort of substantive philosophical question which is well if he's not trying to be hegelian should he right like uh right. you know is right. is is the is the thing that's like is the thing that you know Proudhon's getting wrong, sort of the you know, sort of down to the uh, his point having a you know insufficiently Hegelian structure to it, which uh, is is certainly what what Marx thinks, and um, you know in a in a weird way, right? Despite um, you know like despite not you know not really being the kind of you know. Marx guy who typically talks in a very Hegelian way. I, I kind of think he's right about that, you know, for, for the reasons that we've been talking about. Yeah. I, before you go, Ben, I want to ask you both a question or put this in a, into a different, the whole thing into a different context, make it a little bit less academic, maybe. Sure. Um, 
to put it into this com- current contemporary political context, maybe around uh, foreign uh, policy and war. And I've noticed over the last couple of years, it seems to me that a lot of the arguments in politics, whether they're on the left or the right, are assuming that the difficulties uh, and the wars and the conflicts are arising uh, due to uh, people who are just failing to be proper, moral, just characters, um, and that uh, the it come has come down to deciding: Are you on Putin's side, or are you on Ukraine's side? Are you on Hamas's side, or are you on Israel's side? Oh. Um, rather than looking at the problems that are on both sides, the problem that is universal that we might want to change. In other words, changing about the mode of production as a Marxist would change the kinds of problems we're facing. Mm-hmm. Changing the politics um, in the Middle East would change the kinds of problems that we're facing. Breaking from a Wilsonian nationalist model of world politics into an internationalist model would change the kinds of problems that we're facing. And it would not be a matter of like choosing one side or another. And so this is, this has been my, what I've attempted to say, I have not been taking, you know, some people like what I say, some people do not. But um, do you think that uh, there are times where conceptions of what's just end up reinforcing um, this mode of production or this way of life as the only possible, as a universal transhistorical way of life that doesn't have the possibility for change, especially when we're judging a situation like, you know, the war in Ukraine. Oh, I, I definitely can say to that, but I know you're on time limit, so. Yeah, okay. yeah, you yeah. go first, Ben. Okay, okay. Sure, sh- sure. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree with a part of that, right? So, I, I guess they, you know, I think that saying that, like, appeals to to moral sentiment have no place in all this would be going too far i think that um marx um very frequently appeals to moral sentiment in 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 his writings right that um i mean you know certainly anybody who's read the last section of capital knows that uh but um like, you know, oftentimes they're like kind of raw waves of moral disgust, you know, rolling off the page. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's definitely part of the intended effect. But I, I, the sense in which I agree with you is that I do think that, um, I do think that there is a way that, uh, and I'm trying to think of how to put this without sounding too one note or too much like, you know, the old man yelling at this, you know, sky the cloud right the uh... em- embrace it embrace it i am the old man yelling at the sky i accept it go ahead uh but i do think that like i do kind of blame twitter for some of this like i think that people i think a lot of people are trained by like a lot of people whose primary engagement with politics is online and whose primary engagement you know and sort of has to do with these like news cycles and these these cycles of who's mad about who about what uh, who's mad at who about what um tend to 
the only way they can really process anything that goes on politically is by is by just kind of having an immediate emotional reaction to it and then like sort of doing the thing that maximally matches you know that reaction or not actually doing anything but you know having the rhetorical position that you know mo- most most clearly matches that so um so if you're um so uh so if you have like the the you know the whoever you're the most mad at right you know you should just sort of take the position that most clearly you know captures your your condemnation and vituperation of that you know person or government or block or whatever right so um you know if if you have you know if you're like sort of properly disgusted by you know putin's invasion of ukraine which you know i actually think you should be but you know but if but you know if you are then you should support the sort of maximalist like you know the u.s should be super involved in this position because that that kind of that kind of captures that uh that you know most appropriately in in your your mind right you know you kind of can't have a perspective other than sort of what do i condemn the most strongly and then how do i express that condemnation um or uh or even I don't want to exaggerate this point because I think its prevalence is really overstated. Um, I actually get the sense that I don't, I don't know how either. You well, know, let's but, do it the opposite. But, 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 Douglas, but I, Douglas Murray, Douglas Murray, who was condemning the attacks of October 7th, he, he yeah. was writing for the New York post, um, walking through the kibbutzes where people were murdered, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, outlining uh, the horror of it. And it was all horrible, right? It was. Sure. And then like his, what, what his ultimate aim is is to say therefore no matter what israel does we cannot criticize israel we, yeah, we cannot yeah, we cannot is, con- we the, cannot condemn yeah 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 right exactly like you know that they that you have either you know you either do the douglas murray thing which i've seen lots of that um you know i mean certainly on social media you see this all the time people saying like uh here's the uh you know, here's this horrible thing, uh, then therefore, right. You know, no ceasefire. Therefore, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. you know, everything Israel's doing is, is okay. And then there's the opposite phenomenon, which again, I think it's prevalence is really overstated, but it definitely exists. Right. Which mm-hmm. is, um, which is sort of like, well, what I'm most mad about is the, uh, the, the, the dispossession and oppression and by, you know, state violence against the the palestinians and the thing that sort of most fully captures this is like i'm not just going to be against what israel's doing i'm going to like support hamas you know that they uh right, right. like 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 something like that right i mean i think that you you end up in strange and stupid places if you're if you're just processing everything through like what am i most outraged about and, and what position sort of you know feels like it captures uh captures that outrage the best right you know this is the you know, the thing that I'm, you know, like I, I've been saying a lot for the last couple of years that I, I you know, I really, uh, you know, and, and certainly even in like domestic politics, you know, there are a lot of people who will say um, that uh, they have um, that, you know, I, I think I think that there are a lot of people who, who, again, come to a lot of strange and stupid places because 
what they do, I mean, it's not even really just like tailing some element of existing politics. That's what people think it is. But I don't, I actually think that's slightly wrong. What it is, is like reverse tailing whoever you dislike the most, right? So uh, if the, if the people who, who piss you off the most are, uh, are conservatives, you just, you just say whatever the opposite is of, you know, what you think they're, you know, they're saying or whatever you think is going to sort of most fully express your opposition to them, which, you know, usually means just siding with, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the liberals are saying today. Uh, and if, uh, if the people who piss you off the most are like annoying PMC libs, you know, then you, uh, then you, you end up, uh, saying, you know, you end up taking all these positions to, to sort of spite them. And then, you know, you, you somehow convinced yourself to become some kind of strange, you know, communist quasi right winger. And oh, just, I've just gone completely right. I mean, that happens a lot too. Well, yeah. Or you just go frankly right. Totally right. That happens yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally right. So I, I think that is, you know, and, and I think that, yeah, I think that's all pretty bad. I mean, like it's a, and, and in a weird way, like it almost feels more like a, um, I don't know, just kind of, uh, and, and I realize when I tell people to log off, I'm like the guy with the, uh, the rolled up uh, 20 still in his nose with blood dripping from it saying, you know, <laughs> you know, we should all be doing less Coke right now. Right. You know, like right. I, I'm clearly too online, but they have a, but like, uh, but that said, I think we should all start doing less Coke. Right. Like I think that, uh, I think that's objectively true. However, hypocritical that, right, I, right. you know, that it's that, that I think that uh, I think logging off and uh, you know, spending, spending more time, reading books and less time being angry and uh you know like uh you know so you can kind of work forwards right from like okay here are uh you know here's the analysis of the material world around me that i find convincing and sure here also are the the socialist you know normative values that i care about um and let's work forward from that instead of just kind of like letting the waves of outrage wash over me and kind of take me where they may yeah well, I, I think well, you're got to go, right, Ben? You're going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I should. I've got to go. Uh, I've got to go drive to Burbank and teach. And I need to pick up like a print order for like the review sheet for the final exam first. So, um, so yeah, I, I should, I should actually be going. You, are you guys going to carry on in my absence? A little bit. Yeah. I think at least on this topic, Cyber Dandy should have a go. Yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you guys both soon. All right. Thanks, Ben. Okay. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.